0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back for another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is John Marinelli, and today we're going to talk a little bit about medical legal considerations in ENT with neurotologist Dr. Doug Ruhl, who has written a bit about this topic and is uh, certainly an expert within our field. So, Dr. Ruhl, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today.
1: No, thanks for having me. Glad to speak about this.
0: There, there's a number of different things I, I wanted to ask you about, but if we could just get started with talking a little bit about why this is Im- important and go over some definitions. Um, so, I, I guess first question: Why do we need to know about this topic?
1: No, that's a great question. I wanted to first to say that this this is I'm not a lawyer. That this um, is just my thoughts between the conversation with us, and I'm just sharing. Insight that I've learned over the last almost decade, as, as my colleagues and I and many others have dove into the legal literature. What sparked our interest is we had access to this database and went through it, and it was pertinent to us because as we dove through the literature, we realized that all of us at some point in our career are going to be involved in at least one, probably several litigations. And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, and it might be directly as us as a defendant. Like if a patient sues us, it might be circumstantially, maybe we will be serving as an expert witness or as a subject matter expert, or it might be indirectly. Our notes and documentation might be discovered in the courtroom and used um, uh, to establish care, to establish the uh, patient's condition, to uh, help a settlement mediation. And so we have to know that although we went into this field and we are helping patients and practicing our, our skill, that uh, we will be involved in a uh, courtroom at some point. So this is very pertinent to at least be aware of this and how to and what's going on and how to mitigate that.
0: What clinical scenarios are typically the ones where we end up getting involved or a lawsuit ends up coming from it or malpractice, that sort of thing?
1: I think in general, um, harm has to uh, come. And that can be physical harm. That can be emotional harm. That can be financial harm. And that's the same in all specialties, uh, not unique to otolaryngology. Um First, I just want to take a step back and say, just because you had a bad outcome or a negative outcome doesn't necessarily mean you're a bad surgeon. So get that out of your head. We treat patients that are sick. We treat patients uh, that have underlying comorbidities. And if you do enough procedures or interactions, there will be surprises. There will be bad outcomes. I think it's incumbent that we don't brush that off, that we always reflect and, and, and improve and are transparent. But um, just because you have a bad outcome doesn't mean you're a bad surgeon. Just because you're involved in a lawsuit doesn't mean you're a bad surgeon. There's this negative stigma that I think has evolved over the last few decades as, as we've been discussing this more and more. And I think that's important because it sheds light into this mysterious uh, legal system. And uh, that's important. But ultimately, what sets us up for failure or what sets us up for a bad legal outcome is uh, negligence. That's the crux of uh, malpractice, medical malpractice. And four big pillars have to come from this. And that is that they have to prove, that, uh, that uh, lawyers have to prove that one, we had a duty to care for the patient. And that's really incumbent on any er- interaction that we have. So that's pretty easy to prove. Number two, that we violated a standard of care. And that becomes the crux of a legal argument is determining what is the standard of care and did we deviate from that. And then number three, did the patient have a compensable injury? And then number four, that the physician's substandard care caused the injury. And again, that point of the uh, the negligence pillars is another uh, thing that usually is expanded upon on that. So really, that uh, what is the standard of care? Did we violate that? And then did that did our did our substandard care result in a compensable injury? Or kind of the crux of any uh, malpractice case.
0: And in a specialty like ENT, where I mean, we do have published guidelines on a number of topics, but there's also there's also a lot of gray area and a lot of practice variation across the United States. For example, how how do how does establishing the standard of care typically? What does that look like typically?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And that's the whole crux of the of the lawsuit is the process of discovery. In you know, the courtroom, that is to find the truth, and so that usually involves expert witnesses. Again, we may be called as a, as an expert witness. Uh, but we expect if we're in the courtroom as a defendant, there will be several expert witnesses on both sides. Uh, they'll use legal treaties like established textbooks or very classic um, um, articles that um, they'll, that the lawyers will use to try to determine the standard of care. There's a big question of what are clinical practice guidelines, right? And so we wrote uh, recently about how they, in our opinion, should be used in a courtroom. We know that clinical practice guidelines in our academy, as a side note, have put out Um, Excellent clinical practice guidelines, probably some of the best in in, uh, the medical field. Um, The role of clinical practice guidelines, in our opinion, should not determine the standard of care alone. They provide a general framework um, that physicians, knowledgeable physicians can use to make sure that they are following general guidelines, but can know to deviate from them for the unique uh, needs or circumstances of the patient. So the guidelines alone, uh, shouldn't set it as legal treaties. But interestingly, there's been several cases where guidelines have been used to impeach witnesses uh, if they didn't follow very uh, broad general standards. Um, but they've also been used to support uh, uh, claims from expert witnesses as well. And a standard of care can also be, the, the light can be shown um, when we review our documentation. You know, so I think it's very clear that we articulate Uh, Our notes well, and it's easy to get rushed in in our clinic and and get busy and make them short and abbreviated. Right, surgeons are known to have these abbreviated notes, and I think it's important that we know that we are writing notes for several reasons. One, it's for ourselves, so that we have a very clear plan. If one of our colleagues pick up a patient and uh, you know continue care, or if we have a break or a long hiatus between uh, visits, we understand what what was the goal and what we're doing. But number two, for our colleagues. Uh, like primary care, particularly that they know um, what the specialist is doing, and then interestingly that the patient is communicating uh, uh, through through our notes. And so, be aware of this. As many EMR has now become easily accessible, many patients have access to our notes, uh, and we may have the ability to choose what notes they can or cannot see, or what parts of the notes they can and cannot see. So, be aware of that at your unique hospitals. But number four, th- our notes are what's used in the courtroom, and you know with the uh um the the court case might be you know years after our encounter or after our procedure and we may have forgotten the details and so our notes may be the only lens that the courtroom has into what we were thinking and that may be the only thing that we have to refresh our memory on this so it's very important that we don't use jargon that others can't uh understand or abbreviations that are not common uh i, I would argue probably avoid abbreviations if we can, but be very, very clear with that. So it's, uh, it's easy to piece together um, if we followed a determined standard or not.
0: And in a lot of these areas where there, there is gray area and there may not be published guidelines, how do the different sides, um, I mean, because obviously expert witnesses or expert opinion is, is used on both sides. How does that play out typically? I mean, you know, jury, most, most of the time doesn't have members that are very well-versed in the topic. And, and so it just pra- practically speaking, what does that end up looking like um, when they try and sift through all this new data and try and weigh the, the legitimacy of these different opinions?
1: Lawyers will try to um, explain what the patient had, what condition the patient had, what choices the patient was offered. So really it goes back to our counseling that the patient needs to be transparent to the courtroom. You know, and I think it's incumbent that as good physicians, as good surgeons, we explain the nature of disease to the patient. We thoroughly explain all options and alternatives, and that we and make the patient a willing participant in their care, particularly elective care. You can make case on uh, emergent cases. Uh, things are a little different. But uh, on elective um procedures that the patient was a willing participant in their care and that they were uh, that they understood all of the options available to them. And that's what presented t- to the uh, courtroom and the jury also now has that um, knowledge. And the standard tends to be what would a there's professional standards and there's um, lay standards. And most states use a lay standard, meaning that a reasonable patient would have also chosen this uh, uh, treatment plan versus a reasonable, um, physician would have also uh, uh, educated in, the patient in a similar way and performed the, pa- the procedure if the if, uh, procedure was in question in a similar way. So there's lay and professional standards. And again, usually I think it's safe to say if, if um, always talk in patient uh, terms and assume that they don't have any medical background. And I think that the jury um, also will make that um, decision based on that lens.
0: Are there areas of ENT or procedures um, specifically that tend to have higher litigation rates?
1: There've been several studies that look at um, uh, litigation trends. And taking a step back, it's it's what was eye opening to us was, or to me was, um, that analyzing legal uh, data is much different than analyzing scientific data. You know, we try to collect like a sample size, for example. We try to collect everybody we can to the, the population that represents what we're uh, analyzing. Versus in the um, legal textbooks, not every um, court case is easily accessible. And so uh, with case law, um, legal precedent helps set and determine future cases. And a lawyer tries to um, uh, present previous cases and their outcomes and argue similarities with the current case uh, to establish um, um, uh, to try to use the uh, previously identified legal standard. And so a lot of these databases are a uh, selection of precedent-setting cases. And so it's not, um, um, so when we look at the legal databases that way. Now other other, uh, papers uh, look at uh, malpractice insurance, sorry, uh, medical insurance. Um, and and then we'll show um, uh, payouts from insurance companies, uh, or in countries with um, government-run health plans. For example, and the United Kingdom is good at um, putting out um, or capturing this. Uh, they're very transparent on um, payouts that the N- NHS, for example, has paid. And so there's a little variance on what you're capturing, but overall in ENT the um, The procedures or subspecialties, if you want to think of it that way, that tend to be the most litigated, usually rhinology floats to the top. Um, And then behind that, sometimes otology is a second or third, uh, head and neck and plastics are also high on the list. Um, And when we look at, when we dissect um, why, it's usually things that involve permanent debilitating injuries. For example, in rhinology, uh, loss of of vision, uh, orbital nerve injuries. Uh, optic nerve injuries, um, uh, for example, with um, head and neck um, plastics, with otology, you are looking at facial nerve injuries, hearing loss, laryngeal nerve injuries, uh, cosmetic injuries. So those those tend to be more litigated, and that follows suit with with um, all procedural based um, specialties.
0: Is wrong site surgery pretty common?
1: Thankfully, not super common in uh, ENT, but it does happen. And that's one of the unforgivable sins of wrong site surgery. When you look at um, the most common areas of negligence, you know usually the top three tend to be delayed diagnosis and treatment, and then improper performance of the procedure. And that can be improper technique or inadequate training uh, if there was a bad outcome. So just know that the uh, number of cases, frequency of cases that you've had also um, uh, becomes discoverable and of, of interest in the courtroom. And, and usually uh, rounding out the top three is in issues with informed consent. Wrong site surgery tends not to be in the top three, but again, it's one of the unforgivable ones where if it happens, the defendant or the surgeon uh, will, will probably um, lose that case. So I think it's important for that one and, and uh, that we have many safety checks before going to the operating room. So I always tell residents, don't don't become complacent as we uh, mark the patient or as we, um, uh, you know, look through our notes and document our notes. Because from my perspective as a notologist, we have patients with uh, chronic ear disease on both sides that may have had multiple surgeries and and hearing loss in both ears. And so sometimes if notes are done poorly, um, it... it, it uh, if it's, if um, records are not scrutinized, it can be easy to um, mix up which ear we are um, doing the surgery on, especially if they're having stage procedures uh, in, in either ears. Uh, make the patient a willing participant in this. I always ask the patient, please tell us in your words, what are we doing? and where, what side are we operating on? And then they uh, are a participant in that process. You know, Images are reviewed prior to the case and displayed in the operating room. From my perspective, audiograms are posted in the room and incorporated into the surgical timeout and pause. And then before any destructive procedure happens, for example, if we're drilling a, a trans lab, as we're in the case and we come to the uh, point where we will cause deafness or hearing loss, Uh, or we will cut a facial nerve injury for a graft, an intentional graft, we stop and we recheck laterality um, because there's no going back after that. And that could be said for anything, Um, uh, you know, in a thyroid surgery, for example, a cosmetic surgery like we mentioned before. um, There are several um, surgeries in ENT that are midline, which is nice, but uh, usually we have a laterality involved with that.
0: You mentioned informed consent that starts to kind of dovetail into the clinical setting. What I, I guess what areas are pertinent or high yield to know about informed consent and, and that being a component of, of negligence, at least claim negligence among uh, many lawsuits? You know,
1: so I think it's very important. And I think we have to get out of the mindset that it is just this one single document that the patient signs in the operating room. When you look at case law, and they bring up issues with informed consent, it it's, it's uh, quickly becomes apparent that it's a process that begins in the clinic. So, with that, you know, when they when a patient signs the informed consent document, we have several things that uh, we're looking into. That one, they were knowledgeable on the disease and the process and the options, and that they were informed when they made this consent. And that begins, like I said, in the clinic. So, um, documenting. Um, all of that is very important. And again, it has to be made, be made very clear that they're not coerced in this, that um, options were not hidden from them and that they're a willing perfi- uh, uh, participant. And we talked a little bit about the lay versus professional standards as well. So I think it's important. I always tell um, trainees, you know, never use um, big jargon that uh, patients won't understand on the risk portion. Make make it very simple. You know, they could have uh, facial uh, weakness or paralysis or hearing loss, for example, and, and kind of go on and on with that. I think it's important that you don't use abbreviation. Um, and that one, one interesting note is I think that all surgeons, you know, staff and attendings that participate in the surgery should be named on the consent. And I've been at some hospitals where there's standard um, verbiage that says other people will be involved with this or trainees may be involved with this. And that's fine. So know what your hospital um, legal team has, has established. But I think it's good just to itemize which surgeons are on there. And, and that came from several cases where a resident um, came in for a portion of the case, performed the critical portion with the staff, and an injury ensued, and that um, resident was not named on the informed um, consent document, and they were found negligent and liable for an inadequate formed consent. So, I think it's important just to, to incorporate that.
0: And what about office-based procedures? Are there particular procedures that are most commonly involved in lawsuits, or...? No,
1: exactly. ENTs, as you know, um, often incorporate office-based procedures more than other specialties. Um, Specifically, if you look at ENT terms in general, if you search for those, uh, cerumen removal floats to the top. as one of the most common office-based procedures that are involved in lawsuits. And that can be primary care, cleaning out the ears, but also um, in the ENT clinic. We have to think that um, often we incorporate, um, you know, techs or um, LPNs or RNs um, in in an ear cleaning clinic setting. And so I think that it's important that if we do that, we mitigate our risks by providing them adequate training and supervision, and that tends to be what's uh, brought into uh, question in those settings. Uh, Also, um, uh, injectables or cosmetic procedures, those often uh, can have uh, negative outcomes similar to in the operating room. Also, medicines that we give. Uh, have been called into question uh, with with ENT and particularly primary care uh, is ototoxic medicines that can cause, again, it goes back to if something causes a permanent debilitating injury, it's more likely to um, uh, be litigated. And hearing loss is no exception. Um, Children, the age of the patient, uh, younger patients have longer to live with a disability, so they're more likely to have uh, outcomes in their favor Um, if it's a permanent disabling condition, going back to our case, uh, a cranial nerve injury or hearing loss or dizziness, for example. And that brings to mind another issue we didn't talk about is use of a nerve monitor in the the, uh, operating room. Um, Specifically, that had been called into question in several cases and had neck surgery uh, with thyroid surgery uh, and also otologic surgery. And in all of those cases, the lack of a nerve monitor was what was used as the uh, to argue negligence and in all of those cases it was determined that the use of the nerve monitor was not required for standard of care and it goes back to what we know you know proper anatomy, proper technique is what is important and the nerve monitor can be used as an adjunct uh, for safety and I think many of us um, uh, incorporate that into our practice the use of a nerve monitor has been uh, increased. Uh, over time in our specialties, but it's important, important to know.
0: You mentioned earlier um, the unique cases of emergencies. Um, I just wanted to take a second to talk, ask you a couple questions about that. And, you know, similarly, some weird situations, for instance, when you're on an airplane or something and someone gets injured or has a problem, um, just the medical legal considerations surrounding those unique situations.
1: I think that's a good question. I kind of break it into things within our scope of practice, for example, in our our hospital. So if a patient comes in with an emergency and we don't have time to go through the informed consent, for example, if the patient is unconscious, then I think it's essential that we secure the airway, stop the bleeding, and and then, um, or involve family members in that process as a medical decision maker. So those those can happen quick, but the, 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 um, crux at hand is is to save life, limb, um, and, and et cetera. You also break it into, you alluded to, in general settings, like an airplane or on the side of the highway, you know, if you see an accident. I think we always have to remember that we want to do good, um, but we may not be adequate to perform those general uh, medical um uh, that general medical care at that point. So reflect and, and know your capabilities, know your limitations. Uh, I think if you can provide something better than the um, uh, uh, resources that are uh, present, use your judgment on that. But I think that um, the crux is that we don't do anything outside of, our, outside of our scope of practice and that we have good intentions and that we're capable. So those are the things that reflect
0: with that. And when we think about, especially in, the, in odd scenarios or or even in the clinical setting, sometimes you encounter a patient who is um, who wants to take an audio recording or a video recording of the encounter. Um, or you could see this happening, and perhaps a, on an airplane or something like that. Um, when patients take recordings, or when there are recordings of the encounter, is that admissible evidence in court? Or how how is that typically thought of?
1: No, those are it's it's possible, uh, and I think in the age of um... As technology becomes smaller and recordings become more accessible, and we all have one on our, in our pocket almost all the times, a phone, right? Um, we have to be mindful that the patient could be recording us, and, and the, we have to take to think about that. The intentions might not be bad for that. You know, maybe they want to make sure that they understand the complex uh, disease or treatment plan that they have. Maybe they have a family member that wants to participate. In, in helping their care. So the intentions might be good. So I think don't don't assume that the intentions are bad. But I think what we should assume is that we're being recorded. Um, and, you know, for, for better or worse, uh, maybe unbeknownst to this, maybe maybe the patient asks us if they can record. So use your best judgment on that. But also know your hospital and local laws. Maybe your hospital has a policy for or against that. Several states have what we call um, one-party versus two-party wiretapping laws, and, and uh, there's been court cases that fall into to that narrative. And what that means is in a one-party uh, wiretapping law, uh, one participant on the conversation, the audio or video recording, has to consent, and that will be the patient, uh, versus in two-party states, um, both parties or all the parties have to consent. So it'd be mindful to see that uh, many, many states are one party. Um, and uh, that, that might uh, play a role in, in is it admissible or not. But don't be surprised if a recording shows up in the operating room. And that can be a recording on the telephone. That can be a recording of you in the clinic uh, or the pre-op or post-op holding areas. Um, that can be um, uh, messages, emails through the electronic medical records. So just know every, every interaction that you have could uh, surface for better or worse. And uh, just a reminder again to always be professional and uh, minimize those problems.
0: I guess as a natural extension of this multimedia discussion, you know presumably text messages, email, correspondence with the patient, all, all these sorts of things could be used in court.
1: Exactly. Um, and, and it's hard to you know, I guess it could, but it's hard to establish that as negligence but what that can uh, has has uh, been used for is to establish the character of the uh, defendant or the surgeon. So they, um, a savvy lawyer might subpoena all text messages between you and your um, uh, clinical staff, you know, and so if you made inappropriate comments um, uh, or wrote off something about the patient, that will present itself. Um, you know, what could also be under scrutiny is the access um, login or access in the EMR or PAC system of w- when a lab was uh, made available and when you logged in to view that lab, and then when you uh, called the patient and documented it, was there a long delay? Um, did you say that you read the MRI report, but the PAC system? Argues differently and says you never logged in to view the images. Those are becoming commonplace now. So be truthful. You know, if you said you if, if you said you looked at the image, make sure you looked at the image uh, uh, versus the report. And uh, you could So I think with the advent of technology, things are easier um, to track our our care and our, our workload, and that surfaces in the court to help. Um, establish our character. And um, it can be used to impeach expert witnesses. It can be used to uh, uh, um, strike statements. Um, So be mindful of that.
0: And and just to clarify, so you said not only correspondence with the patient, but even among colleagues or um, clinical staff, that sort of thing, they can use all of that, um, all of those messages or whatever the, the medium is?
1: Right, they can try. It. So it's not it's not um, very common, but there have been cases where that has been uh, used in the courtroom. Um, so just again, be professional in your uh, in your interactions, and uh, you'll save yourself a problem with that.
0: I guess another related question. So let's say you're involved you're involved in an adverse event, um, or something happens that you're you're concerned. You know, I wonder if if this could um, turn into a lawsuit down the road. Um, recommendations or thoughts on on how to think about those situations?
1: No and you may find that in a uh, clinical encounter you may find out in the, in the middle of a, a operating room a procedure or during a follow-up but if you find yourself in a bad position, particularly in the OR because a lot of the um, um, negligence hovers around um, treatment um, just pause breathe don't get flustered. We tend to um, when we become bewildered or flustered or angry make more mistakes. So take a breath if you can. Pause. Phone a friend if you can. Um, you know, I've been in uh, at several um, uh, times with colleagues. Will call and ask an opinion in the middle of the case, or, uh, or ask to come uh, eyeball something in the operating room. Definitely do that. Get a fresh set of eyes in there if you can. Um, if it's safe, don't be afraid to stop and then uh, return when you're better equipped. Um, if if something was challenging, if it's safe for the patient. Um, but then the biggest thing is be open and honest with the family. Um, if something deviates uh, in the case and the family is, is uh, you know, a participant in their care, make them uh, be transparent in the operating room. Be transparent with the patient afterwards. Um, I think that we find that for the exact same um, injury, physicians that um, shun patients or shun complications, the patients tend to feel abandoned. When they feel abandoned, they're more likely to pursue litigation um, versus reining those patients in closer, being transparent and, and showing humanity, um, and and uh, and uh, c- continuing care for the patient and their and their needs. Now, I think it, not only is that the right thing to do, uh, but it portends to uh, more favorable uh, legal outcomes or the lack of a lawsuit in general. But then be be transparent with your hospital. Um, if an egregious event happens, you know, um, let your um, um, supervisors know, let the hospital know. Uh, I, I promise you the legal team would rather hear from you first than another lawyer. And so I think that uh, just being open, honest, and transparent is, is very crucial.
0: And I guess if, if a, a lawsuit does ensue, um, what are the first steps or the, the next steps that you need to take um, in terms of contacting the hospital, getting a lawyer? How does that stuff typically play out?
1: Right, it's unique to every situation. Obviously, you will have uh, important to have um, adequate uh, malpractice coverage. Usually, at your practice or your hospital level, you might find out directly from the uh, um, the opposing legal team, or you might find find out through your hospital or clinic um, practice. So, um, if if uh, they are not aware, uh, quickly make them uh, aware, and they should have um, a. Uh, systematic process to help guide you through this and then you can pause and go through all of your notes and again that's why it goes back to document well because you might find out about this lawsuit years later and your notes might be the only thing uh, that jogs your memory and that's the only insight um, to the courtroom of what happened uh, around and during the encounter
0: and shifting gears a little bit let's say you're um Asked to be an expert witness on a case, um, any thoughts on that? Preparing for that, is there any? Are there any guidelines um, that can guide that um, involvement?
1: Right, I think with both situations, just taking a step back. Well, when when you uh, if you're involved in a lawsuit, ask colleagues. And the same thing if you're asked to be an expert witness, ask colleagues. This should not be a taboo topic, and it's becoming less taboo as we as we uh, um, talk more about medical malpractice. Um, you'll be surprised. Other people, um, some of your colleagues um, may have been involved in a lawsuit and can open up and share their experience, or uh, others might have been an expert witness and they can share their experience. I, I, I don't think um, we need to think of expert witnesses or being an expert witness as something malicious or evil that you're out to you know, work for or against a certain party. It is very... Uh, honorable and incumbent in our jobs to, you know, we are subject matter experts. And so perhaps we can um, help share truth in the courtroom to help discover um, uh, and um, help help an outcome or help a patient or help a colleague. Um, but I think we need to uh, always remain unbiased is a big thing and not have malicious intent. Now, our academy has general guidelines um, on how an expert witness should conduct themselves. And specifically, we should be board certified. We should um, be well practiced in that content that's in question. Um, that we should not accept uh, an egregious payout. That we should be unbiased and not um, have um, um, coercible intent. That we should just be neutral and uh, well versed in in that subject and just present the facts on what we uh, what we know and let the, the legal system uh, work itself out.
0: And. Shifting gears here again, um, it's the last main area I wanted to ask you about. Just in light of all of the telehealth um, that has transpired in conjunction with the COVID pandemic, um, are there special, special considerations surrounding uh, malpractice in a telehealth setting?
1: Man, has that evolved this year, right? So I think that there have been other specialties that had embraced telehealth prior to um, this year and some, some in our specialty. I think that on a cursory view, our specialty, just by nature of being a surgical specialist, we're hands-on, we see, we need to see the patient, we need to see uh, in parts of the patient that we can't see on a, a webcam, for example, like deep in the nose and sinuses and the throat and the ears. And so I, I think that we have to realize that you know, many of us shifted to virtual health, and I think that's a great thing uh, if it's done well. And I think it's from a legal standpoint, there's been um, much written on the platform needs to be protected because ultimately um, the encounter that we have, the, um, you know, sharing images or sharing um, uh, medical components of their medical records like audiograms or lab results or um, imaging scans, you know, uh, via a a web platform, it needs to protect patient care. So it needs to be um, uh, approved by our hospital. And there's many of them out there now. Um, and I think we also need to know our limits with that. You know, it may be a good setting to go over results with a patient or uh, an initial screen, um, but there comes a time where um, we we should re- rein them in to physically uh, look at them. What um, we don't want to fall prey to is a delayed diagnosis or treatment. So those are the things that we need to balance in our minds. I think it's a great opportunity to provide care to maybe remote areas uh, or maybe prevent patients from traveling long distances for um, more minor general visits, but I, I think that it um, has a potential to um, you know, be a great component to our practice if, if we're mindful.
0: Any other comments or suggestions um, as we wrap up the episode, things we haven't talked about?
1: Yeah, no, I think that um, it's good to just remain aware of the potential interactions that we might have in, in, the, uh, in a, a courtroom remain knowledgeable in our field just be just be a good doctor right continue your passion if you do that you'll remain current in your field you know you'll remain uh, knowledgeable and be human and interact with the patients um you know uh and and again be transparent with them like we mentioned before um be open and honest you know if things don't go as planned or if there's uh hiccups along the way um and rein in um, patients that uh, either are dissatisfied or that have a suboptimal outcome and uh, be open and honest with them. And I think that's going to go a long way because I think they understand we're human too. Um, when we deviate from the humanity aspect of medicines, I think that also is a um, uh, opens us up to um, uh, litigation, but also know our limits, right? If we um, uh don't do uh, certain things frequently, and one of our colleagues does, maybe they're better suited for, for um, that particular procedure, um, You know, or um, just know, know what we are safe um, to tackle.
0: All right, Dr. Rule. well, I think that was a great um, introduction or covering of the topic, and just appreciate your time and being on today. All right, now I'll transition to the uh, summary portion of the podcast. Um, just a brief summary here no questions just want to nail down this idea that uh, a bad outcome in in the United States legal system a bad outcome is not akin to uh, malpractice malpractice has to involve improper illegal um, or negligent professional activity or treatment and really the the everything falls on this idea of negligence um, demonstrating that there was negligence and the four key components the four elements of negligence are that the physician had a duty to care for the patient, which is typically very easy to demonstrate. Um, the second and much more challenging um, component to demonstrate is that the physician violated an accepted standard of care, and And most of the effort put on both sides of the um, trial, the defendant and um, those suing, falls on this idea of demonstrating what is the standard of care. Um, third, the patient had experienced a uh, compensable injury and then fourth the physician substandard care um, caused that injury um, so all of those have to be d- demonstrated in order to uh, in order to conclude that there was malpractice um, we spent the bulk of this discussion talking about some common procedures, both in the OR and office base that lead that lend themselves to um, lawsuits. Rhinology being associated with the the most commonly cited lawsuits, um, followed by closely by head and neck otology, facial plastics. Um, talked about even clinic procedures ca- leading to lawsuits. Mo- perhaps surprisingly, um, uh, cerumen removal being common. Um, especially concerning oversight of those procedures in a clinic setting. And then it's been a significant discussion talking about documentation, importance of being very careful and cognizant of the documentation, being mindful of copying and pasting dot phrases, documenting, for instance, on informed consent, who's in the procedure, and just, just being very careful in that because oftentimes these cases come up years later where you don't remember hardly anything about the case and the notes are the only thing you have to go off of. I think that'll wrap things up for today's summary. Thanks so much for tuning in and we'll catch you next time.